The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good evening to those who are online with us. We're just getting going with our Bible study portion of our Wednesday evening time together. If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6. We have made it to the end of chapter 5. I looked back. I think we had uh, eight different messages or studies in chapter 5 that we did. So we've somewhat exhausted that chapter, I think. And uh, now we're moving on to chapter 6. Hopefully that's given you enough time now to turn there. And uh, let me read for you verses 1 through 5, our primary text for this evening. Although I already warned Pastor at the beginning, as you have those questions in front of you, uh, be prepared to bring that back a second time, because I don't think we're going to make it even to verse 5 this evening, not even close. So uh, bear with me in that as we as we look at the text this evening. But let me read for you now verses 1 through 5, and you can follow along in your text of, of the word. Paul here writes, Brethren, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one... But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. I want us to consider this evening primarily verse 1 in the exhortation that we have here, what Paul is telling the Galatians to do, and how, again, that also then applies to us in our culture and our church today, our responsibilities as believers in a local church. And uh, the immediate context here reveals that the topic that Paul is addressing is discipline, that is church discipline. Paul is then here introducing to the Galatians kind of a hypothetical situation here in verse 1 that requires corporate involvement from the church, that is the church as a whole, the local body, the body of Christ as it gathers in a local church format. In any case, really church discipline is not something that is enjoyable to have to enact, nor is it enjoyable for those who are being disciplined, but it is necessary because scripture says it is, right? Something that needs to happen. Due process. It is, though, maybe as uncomfortable or unpleasant as it is to talk about, or even, of course, to have to enact, it is important to talk about since Scripture prescribes the structure for church discipline. We see this in Matthew chapter 18. And Scripture prescribes the proper attitude for these kind of disciplinary measures. As unpleasant as it may seem, 
the end result of church discipline, if done properly, and that's the key, if done properly, can be very fruitful for both church members and the sinning brother. As it can result in much spiritual growth on an individual level, that is, the person being disciplined, as well as very fruitful and spiritually growing for the church as on a corporate level as well. On the other hand, as I think our text this evening reveals to us, an improper handling of discipline, uh, of a discipline issue by the church as a whole, can be very spiritually damaging to all the parties involved. So we must be very aware of how we are to address the situation. And that's Paul's purpose in the text here, in the immediate context, is to teach believers that they are responsible for church discipline, as well as to teach them how to properly properly restore a brother who is sinning. Paul is teaching them the church as a whole to discipline a, a sinning believer and how to properly restore them uh, to the church. Look with me uh, at verse 1 again, where Paul says, Brethren, here we see that Paul is speaking specifically to those who are of the church in, in those Galatian churches, the the church as a whole, those who confess to be born-again believers who are, if we look back at verse 25, those who are living in the Spirit, meaning they have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Those are the ones whom Paul is talking to, those who are Christ's, who bear the name of Christ in them. Those are the ones whom Paul is specifically talking to when he says, Brethren, He goes on to say, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. When we think of Matthew chapter 18 and a common passage to explain the process of church discipline, we need to perhaps understand two things about that process. Uh, There's more than just a structure to it. Perhaps we think of Matthew chapter 18. We we think of the prescription of church discipline, how it's structured, how we are to go about that process. There's more than just a process or a structure to discipline. It also requires the right kind of attitude as well, how we go about disciplining and restoring a sinning brother. And although... This context, the context here, speaks of the process. I think it also primarily speaks about the kind of attitude that's to be had by those who are uh, restoring the brother to uh, the church. First, though, we need to consider uh, the scenario here that Paul is presenting, the kind of hypothetical situation. He says, if... Uh, Putting it then, I guess we can say in that hypothetical situation, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, what does it mean to be overtaken? We need to consider this first. Paul has proposed this idea that a man has fallen into sin, but he uses the idea or the verb overtaken. What does it mean to be overtaken? 
Well, the reason we need to address this is because there is some disagreement of interpretation. The Greek word that is used here can actually mean two different things. It can either mean, one, that the brother was caught in his sin by another brother. Perhaps your translation uh, uses that word actually caught instead of overtaken. I think the English uh, standard version uses that and even the NIV uh, and perhaps the, the NASB as well. It says if a man is caught. Uh, so that is one, one perhaps interpretation or meaning. The, the idea of a, a brother catching another brother in the act of sin or in the practice of a sin. It could also mean, the Greek verb could also mean that the brother was caught by the trespass itself. Meaning in one sense or another that the temptation itself lured him in to the point where he couldn't control himself. He just fell or was caught by that trespass. Although perhaps to us the latter does seem fairly illogical. How does a kind of inanimate thing of that sense catch a believer into sin? Many commentators suggest that it describes someone who does not commit the sin with premeditation, perhaps like we think of murder or stealing. Obviously, there's a premeditation there. They're, they know uh, they, they fall to that desire, they, they plan it out, and then they, they go forward with that, with that sin. So they suggest that it prescribes someone who does not commit a sin with premeditation, but rather fails to be on his guard, or perhaps we could say flirts with temptation, which he believes he can withstand on his own. Well, may I propose to you that even if this is the case, either one is a failure to be walking in the Spirit, as believers are specifically commanded to do. Remember back what uh, verse 24 and 25 said, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then the command, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So whether or not they are either caught by another in sin or the idea of being caught by the trespass itself, either one is a failure to be walking in the spirit and still places full responsibility on the transgressor, not the transgression. The transgressor is the one responsible. They decided to walk in the flesh, not the spirit, and therefore they have been overtaken in a trespass. However, uh, although we make that point, the immediate context teaches us that Paul's point is not necessarily about what form this verb takes, obviously, but that the whole picture is that uh, the responsibility, it is the responsibility of the church body to properly restore the brother who is in sin. That's Paul's main point here. The believers, the church, have a responsibility to restore such a person Paul then goes on to teach the Galatians how they are to deal with the transgressor. Look at the latter part of verse 1. What does Paul exhort the Galatians here to do? He says, You who are spiritual, restore such a person, such a one, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The first lesson or first exhortation that Paul 
is teaching them about their responsibility to properly restore brothers, that that it is to be done by the spiritually mature ones in the church. Paul says, you who are spiritual. The phrase, you who are spiritual, must be carefully considered. We need to make sure we completely understand what Paul is saying here. The Pharisees thought they were, quote-unquote, spiritual because of their ritualism, laws, and, and their lineage. However, Christ called them out for their hypocritical behaviors, did he not? This is not the kind of spirituality that Paul is speaking about here. Paul is not referring to, a, to self-elevated persons who, in the church, think that they are spiritual and flaunt their so-called spirituality to one another. Rather, Paul is telling the Galatians that responsibility for restoring a brother in the church who has sinned rests on the shoulders of those who are more spiritually mature at the time, those who are walking in the spirit. That is the, that is the ones, or that, are, that is those who are, are to restore this brother. Spiritually mature believers are those who are walking in the spirit and not in the flesh as Paul exhorts them to do in the previous passage. Look with me uh, for a moment or listen in as I read Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Paul writes there concerning a similar matter or the idea of, of helping, restoring, he says, we then, who are strong, strong in what way? Well, spiritually speaking, we then, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Who are the strong ones in this passage? Well, as I just said, they're the spiritually strengthened ones, the spiritually mature, those who are walking in the spirit. They are the ones who are to, to assist those who are weak and, need, and, and in need of help. We could also consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 14. Mark that down and you can look at that later, though. What's, what do we also need to consider about this idea of being the spiritual ones, though, here, that Galatians chapter 6 is talking about. Well, we need to be careful not to think that there are, we could say, two tiers or two levels of people in the church. That is, those who are spiritual and those who are not. That is a dangerous thing to to have, a kind of idea that uh, there are those who are not spiritual in the church and then somehow, in some way or another, make themselves or self-elevate themselves into a second tier. As if there are the spiritual ones and the non-spiritual ones. And it's a matter of time or, or a matter of self-elevation that places you into a separate category in the church. Where one group is despised and the other is exalted. Let me say it another way. Anyone in the church can be at one moment or another either walking spiritually, that is, walking in the spirit, or they can be walking in the flesh. 
Anyone in the church can be at one moment walking spiritually or unspiritually, not in the spirit. It's not as if you rank yourself up and then stay there. And now you can look down at the others at any one time or another and despise them for their immaturity or their weaknesses. Because you yourselves, as Paul is about to warn later in the text, can fall into temptation and sin yourselves. And what category then does that put you in? So the idea here is that there are believers who are in the moment walking in the spirit and it is their responsibility, the the responsibility rests on their shoulders to restore the one who is not walking in the spirit, who has fallen into sin. As we look at the rest of verse 1, we see that the responsibility not only falls on the shoulders of those who are spiritually mature, but also we need to consider what is the purpose of addressing this issue in the first place, of addressing this sin, the man in sin. Well, that it is done, that restoration is done in order to restore them to their, to their original state. The aim of addressing this situation and, and going about this disciplinary issue is to be done with the aim of restoration. What does it mean to restore? What is the meaning of restore here in this passage? He says, those who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What does it mean to restore this kind of person? In the immediate context, the word restore means to mend or repair or to make something right. This then, we could say, and would understand implies that currently that thing, whatever it be, in this case a person, is torn or broken or is not in its right or proper state. If it needs restoration, if it needs to be restored, then it is in some way or another broken or in need of repair. It's not in its proper or right state. Paul uses this same kind of verb in 1 Corinthians 1.10 to exhort the Christians to be joined in unity of mind. And more generally, he uses the same verb of restore in 2 Corinthians 13.11 to exhort the Christians to mend their ways with one another. Perhaps uh, an illustration would help in this manner. When uh, my wife and I were down enjoying our honeymoon in South Carolina, we went up and visited Charleston, South Carolina, which is rich with history. And uh, during our time in the city there, uh, we visited two different uh, houses, uh, kind of museums. And the one uh, was a... A, pres- a preserved house that helped you understand what it was like during the Civil War era. And the idea of preservation is to keep things as close as they are at that time in which they you know, got uh, claimed hold of that house, to keep it as close as possible to what it would have looked like back in that day. So they didn't go about and patch the, the, you know, the paint up or or fix the the wallpaper or the broken mirrors they kept it they preserved it in its state that they found it in in order to preserve the the history of it so that was one house that we looked at now, the other one which we went to was a restored home 
And in that case, the purpose was to restore it as close as possible to its original state. State. So they looked for the kind of the color of paints that would be used, and even the kind of paint that would be used, the kind of furniture that would be used, or carpet, or the the home and the structure, and uh, and how it was built. And so when you walked around that house, it looked as if it were, would in its original state, in its color and form and fashion. And that's the idea here in Galatians chapter 6, is that the purpose of this discipline is to restore the one who is in to his original state. And what was that original state? Walking in the spirit, walking in holiness and righteousness. The idea, of course, and it'd be silly to even think this, is, is not to preserve them in the state in which they are in their sin, but to take them back to the original state in which they they were in, that is, walking in the Spirit. So, that then begs the question, how then do we spiritually, how do the spiritually mature restore a brother? If that's our responsibility, how do we do this? Well, in any case, in order for restoration to take place, there must be a recognition that it is not in the right state. That's, of course, implied. Of course, we know that. But still, that recognition needs to be there that this person has erred and he needs to be restored. Of course, the body of believers is responsible to recognize first that the brother is in sin and call out his actions as sinful. They need to address the situation and call out the sin and say, what you are doing is sin. And we are here to help and to restore you uh, back to the right state in which you were in beforehand, walking in the Spirit, in, in right fellowship with God, and of course with the other believers in the church. A negative example would be 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where in that case uh, the, the believers did not even recognize or did not admit that the that this erring brother was even even sinning. They were boasting about the situation, were they not? That, of course, is not a good position to be in as a, as a corporate body of believers. So, therefore, we need to recognize that the believers, the church needs to recognize that the brother is in sin and address him and call him out on his, in his sinful actions. Once this has happened, as Matthew 18 instructs, the spiritually mature believers must go to that brother and help him recognize his sin. Until he recognizes that he has sinned, restoration has not fully taken place. The process may have begun, we could say. The sin has been recognized and it's been brought to the attention of the transgressor. But until repentance happens, until confession of sin and repentance takes place, the brother has not yet been restored. Has he? Of course not. So we recognize, of course, in the broader scheme of things in this passage, that Paul is teaching the Galatians that that they are responsible for restoring a sinning brother. How are they to go about this? Well, first, it's the spiritually mature who are to restore the, the brother. And it's to be done with the aim of restoration, But we also see that it is to be done with gentleness as well. Look at uh, 
the middle of verse 1. Paul exhorts them, such, uh, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Oftentimes, I think when we think of the idea of church discipline, we think of the disciplinary actions that take place in the process, the due process of doing it. But we often, I, 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 uh, I think, forget the kind of attitude behind uh, the people and, why, and how we are to respond in these situations. What is the attitude that we are to have in, in this process? Well, Paul here says it's to be a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness because, as the verse goes on to say, uh, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. In one way or another, we need to understand the fact that any one of us at any time could fall into temptation or maybe in sin ourselves at the very moment in which another brother is. That spirit of gentleness should then control our response to that erring brother and how we are to address him in his sin. Of course, this does not mean we excuse his sinfulness as if it's okay or we we console him there, there, it's okay. (laughs) We all do this. Truth, that may be. But in the moment, too, we are to exhort him to repent of his sin and turn, turn away from it. But at the same time, we are to have a spirit of gentleness. Of course, that is the fruit of the spirit, as we've seen already. The fruit of someone who is walking in the spirit is a character or a conduct of gentleness. So it should be assumed that the spiritually one who is restoring a brother has already a spirit of gentleness within him because he's walking in the spirit, right? And therefore, he is not to divorce that gentleness, that behavior that he's, he normally is exemplifying because he's walking in the spirit, but rather use that spirit of gentleness in the process of restoring a sinful brother. And then the final portion of verse 1, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. When we need to address these kind of situations of discipline, we need to do it and it needs to be done with careful consideration of self. Careful consideration of self. What do we mean by that? Well, as I've already mentioned and alluded to, we must be careful that we ourselves are not uh, led into temptation or found to be in sin ourselves when another brother himself is in sin. It is our responsibility to first address our own sinful nature, our own sin that we may be in, and to confess it before the Lord. Only then are we in a proper state in which we can help another brother in his errors. There's other scriptures, of course, that speak to this manner. But in this case, the issue here is, are, as we'll see in the rest of the text, verses 2 through 5, that there are those who boast about their spirituality, who boast about their maturity, 
when Paul then says, well, they themselves are deceiving themselves. They also have been led into temptation and are falling into sin. And therefore, with any restoration that takes place must first be done with careful consideration of self. As we conclude this evening, and we're out of time, a very necessary component of our Christian life is in Christianity is the personal interaction of it, the, the one another nature of it, that we help other brothers and sisters in Christ. It can be said that there are Christians who are lone rangers, but there are not really mature Christians who are lone rangers, are there? This will become even more evident as we look uh, at the following passages, the following verses, I should say, wherein we are called to bear one another's burdens. And the one another commands imply this kind of idea as well. And in this particular passage, we see that the other mature Christians are capable of helping those who have fallen into sin. In fact, as Paul exhorts them in this passage here, they are responsible to do so. It is their very responsibility to do this. That is a part of the local church's responsibility and believers on an individual and corporate level. Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for This evening, Lord, we thank you for the time that we can have together. Lord, I know our time was somewhat short. Our passage was brief in the sense of how much we covered. But Lord, even in that sense, uh, it is rich and full of exhortations and commands uh, immediately to the Galatians who were dealing with situations of their own and the possibilities of erring brothers and, of course, erring brothers in that time and at that moment. We can assume. And Lord, uh, help us not to be self-deceived to think that at any one moment or that not at any one moment we could have a similar situation in our, in our midst. So Lord, help us to be properly prepared, not just in the process of how it's to be done, but the kind of attitude in which it is to be done with. Lord, uh, we pray that we would examine our own selves lest we be deceived that we are not in sin or have nothing to confess ourselves. And Lord, in any situation, let us do everything with a spirit of gentleness, not excusing sin, but recognizing uh, the benefit that it has for those who are in sin, to see that we are there to help them, but also for our own good, that we Don't fall into a boastful kind of mindset, bragging or taunting the fact that we ourselves are more capable of not sinning. (laughs) That is not the case, of course. We know that. So help us, Lord, in this. Give us the strength to walk in the Spirit. Lord, help us to rely upon the Spirit's power to do so. And, uh, And, Lord, to encourage one another in the same manner. Bless this evening, Lord. Give us safety as we go. And bless the fellowship that we are about to immediately have with some online. We thank you for that opportunity in your name. Amen.